Hello, fellow watch lovers, nerds, enthusiasts, or however you identify. You're listening to 40 and 20, the Watch Clicker podcast with your hosts, Andrew, and my good friend Everett. Here, we talk about watches, food, drinks, life, and other things we like. Everett, how are you? I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. It's it's muggy, so I'm a little, I feel a little sweaty. I feel a little anxiety. Oh, no. It's Monday, too, and I forgot to put my trash out. It, it It's okay. They don't come till like, 3. They don't. You're right. <laughs> I just saw the trash truck. There's so many trash trucks that come down our street. We, there's, like, 12 houses on our street, and it's a little cul-de-sac. And I, I think 13 trips through for just the trash. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. That, well, I think there's yeah, it's the same day, two trucks. Yeah, it's it's a weird. But they, I I think because of where we're situated, they they don't do both sides of the street when they come through. That's right. They it's come like on different sides of their route. They come through later. Yeah. How are you, Andrew? I'm good. I my voice finally in my headset finally sounds like I think I sound. You're back. I'm back. You're back, baby. Yeah. Well, great. That's it. I'm feeling good. I'm excited for starting my weekend. We're drinking coffee this morning, which yeah, is a weird. little different. And I'm out. Which is a little, yeah, I think I'm out too. Uh, but because it's early for us, it's it it's morning time. Yeah, it's 8 a.m. And there's a good reason for that. Yeah. There's a good reason for that. In Best. fact, a really good reason. I, exciting reason. They know. I'm, I, I don't they've need read to. It. They've yeah. read it on the, on the, but we've got a, a really special interview. One of my, uh, one of my most coveted interviews. Uh, we've got the CEO and founder of, co-founder, CEO and co-founder of Christopher Ward. We've got Mike France all the way from England here uh, on the line with us. Mike, how, how are you? I'm very well, Andrew. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for inviting me on your podcast. I'm looking forward to this as well. We are so pleased to have you and have been working out details to get you here, so it's very exciting to get somebody like you on who, I mean, when we were talking in pre-show, seems to share our uh, our desire for the democratization of watches, to use the term that uh, that you use. Absolutely. Yeah. Power, to, power to the people. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's right. That's right. Well, uh, Mike, you're here. We, we're, we're appreciative. We uh, are also really aware that you're an extremely busy man. So I'm hoping we can just get right into it. And you can tell us how you became involved in, I'm guessing, 2003, 2004 with the company we know and love as Christopher Ward. Uh, sure. Um Boredom really was the reason I got involved uh, in Chris Wood. Not, not, nothing more, um, nothing more interesting than that, really. Um, my uh, fellow co-founder Peter Ellis and I had uh, recently sold a business that we had um, we've been involved with, and um, there's only so much beach lying you can do, really. And about a month after we'd sold it, um, uh, I was bored. Um, literally um i think we're i think we're put on this planet to to be productive um as much as we can be and uh, so corralled uh, um peter uh, who was probably a bit more prepared to spend a little bit more time on the beach than i was <laughs> uh corralled peter and uh, an old mucker of mine uh, chris ward who i'd been out of touch with for a good few years but had quite re- you know recently in sort of 2003 got back in touch with he was um 
he was sort of, um, how shall I say, he was less than happy with what he was up to at the time. And so on a, what's become a, a fairly infamous or famous boat trip uh, on the Thames um, around about um, May 2000, April, May 2004, uh, we decided, uh, I know, let's start a watch brand. Um, uh, <laughs> that really is something to do. Uh, and because, uh, and we had, I mean, there was, there was, there was some rationale to it. I mean, we wanted, um, I, Peter and I and Chris had spent most of our lives in um, retailing of one sort or another, but, but my background was fashion, then into home, then into toys. Um, occasionally, um, <laughs> a few uh, footwear as well. Chris had tended to be in the sportswear arena. Peter and I had met up, um, you know, 15, 20 years earlier and had worked together ever since. Um, so we knew we probably should stick to something we knew, which was retailing, yeah. branding. Um, but we knew nothing about watches apart from the fact that we we, we kind of like watches. I mean, we absolutely knew nothing about watches. Um, but we, and I've told this story a few times, but we, you know, you, you need luck, don't you? People, mm. and I, I, I consider myself, I've, I've had more than my share of luck, uh, it should be said. Um, and we, um, we, what we did know is, uh, what we did believe was that um, the internet was likely to be the sort of uh, the wave of the future. I mean, it seems odd these days to even talk of it in that sense. But back in '04, the jury was still out. I mean, people literally rang me when they heard that I was going into watches, saying, "You must be mad. You will never sell a watch online." You know, it's impossible. <laughs> not going to happen. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, no, it's just not going to happen. And and had we not already had some experience of selling, of having the same, some of the same people, it should be said, telling us we'll never sell climbing frames for children online. If they, if we hadn't had that experience, we might well have taken their advice and gone and done something else. Mm -hmm. But we we'd been involved in the internet since. 97 we're one of the sort of first retail brands in the uk to to really embrace the internet and we discovered that um it was it was it was growing exponentially and even difficult products like climbing frames for children big things that you stick in your garden yeah um, it was possible to sell those online so we kind of figured that if that was possible it was probably a reasonable bet that selling watches online might even be a little simpler than um, selling climbing frames. Yeah, the, yeah. Logi the logistics alone of shipping <laughs> and packing, you, you've reduced all of that headache. Well, I mean, absolutely right. And, and, and the logic that we apply to well, what sort of business might we want to get involved with, we said early on, internet and internet only. Had enough of bricks and mortar. It seems like a really wise decision these days. Well, yeah. The pandemic, but, but, yeah, <laughs> but I'm not right. For, for I'm, not sure, I'm not sure we were that wise. Um, but we, we, we sort of um, knew that we wanted to get on the internet. And then, well, what do we do? Um, what do we sell on the internet? What we wanted was something that um, could be shipped around the world, that, 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 that was possible to, uh, to sell in on a global basis. That kind of ruled out sofas. Um, so <laughs> Climbing frames. So... Yeah, I mean, um, we want so it needed to be reasonably small. 
that led us to, well, what about jewellery? You know, and high value, because we didn't want to be busy fools necessarily. You know? yeah. I mean, churning out millions of T-shirts wasn't really something we had uh, in our psyche. So it needed to be of a reasonable high value. That sort of led us towards two things. One was jewellery. Um, I'm in touch with my feminine side, but the other two just weren't. So we ruled that out fairly quickly. <laughs> you, you, um, haven't, you haven't told them, Mike, that watches are jewellery, have you? Yeah. Well, no, no, that 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 secret just between you and I. Yeah, right, they we'll, they we'll don't see it that way. <laughs> and so we ended up thinking, well, we like watches. Uh, there's nothing, as you know, nothing as universal as time, um, right. and therefore it seemed that this was it fitted all of the all of the uh, all of the criteria that we had. Um, we just needed to go and find out a bit about them, um, which we did, and um, we were very fortunate in meeting people, having access to things that mm, possibly would have taken many years for most people to access. And that led us to the business model and what we believed to be a gap in the market, which was high quality premium watches at a retail margin of times three multiple um, with no compromise on quality um, using the business model uh, of the internet with a a, you know, a reasonable view about the profit margin, an honest view about the profit margin, to pass all those advantages as best we could back to the customer. Your point about, uh, in your intro, about the democratization of watches, it felt to us when we had learned some of the multiples that people were applying to watch costs. Well, frankly, it, it's not too, it, it really isn't um, overstating it to say we were disgusted by it. I mean, literally, we found it offensive mm-hmm. um, and still do, uh, to be honest, because there are still plenty of brands out there who are absolutely laying it on with a trowel. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I and, and therefore, you know, this whole thing about luxury, whatever luxury really means, um, you know, is something that we, we wanted to try and redefine and bring as many people into that sort of visceral pleasure that we all know exists when you own a fine watch, when you have it on your wrist, when you, the sort of pleasure that is, is almost, um, is almost impossible to define, um, but gives you something beyond, you know, uh, just a functional item. And that, that's, that was the spark that uh, led us onto the journey that we've been on it's, sort of thing. So it sounds like the, the real, <clears throat> where you guys needed to pick up speed was in your manu- in, in the manufacturing. You, you had all that all that f- other business acumen bringing it into it. What what it was the manufacturing background that you guys brought to the table, or was that where you had to had to really generate some momentum quickly? Well, we had we had to we had to get knowledge quickly. Mm. I mean, we I, I had been um, in previous lives, uh, you know, um, both the CEO of um, of the Early Learning Center, which was our previous business, which was a you know, quite a big um, toy business. So, and we had our own, um, we had our own manufacturing, um, design and manufacturing operation uh, in uh, in Hong Kong and then into China. And prior to that, all of us had been involved in various aspects of um, clothing, footwear and home um, businesses, uh, all of whom, um, all of which had manufacturing as its core. I was a buying director for a large blue chip retail business in the UK or a couple of them prior to um, prior to even getting involved in toys. So we had a kind of an understanding mm. about 
manufacturing. But what we didn't understand at all is the um, is the, the the manufacturing of watches, and it became quite, it was quite a shock to us to discover actually. I mean, we were introduced by people we knew. I mean, one of the benefits of coming in with a few scars on our back from other industries was that we had um, we had people who we knew who were involved previously in the watch industry, and apart from providing us with mountains of marketing data that allowed us to really get our heads around the, the scope of the industry circa 2004. They also introduced us to um, a number of um, manufacturers. I don't know if you know the story in terms of the, the class of 32, as we call them, um, there were 32 Chinese nationals, um, Taiwanese and Chinese nationals, and a few Thais, I think, um, who were taken by the Swiss into their bosom in the mid to late 60s and taught all of the arts, dark arts of horology. Right. Mm -hmm. um, these guys then went back to their, largely went back to their, um, their home countries. And some of them became very, very, very important. Uh, several of them were also in charge of um, the branding for some of these major brands in, the, uh, in Far East Asia. So um, we were given access, including access to first cost, that you would never normally get to see because a friend who had been a member of that class of 32 introduces to his friends who had also been members of the class of 32. And because of trust, which is what all relationships ultimately depend upon, they were, they were, they were open with us about what was going on. That's where we discovered that actually many of the major brands, um, particularly in the sort of, um, uh, mid-sector of luxury, uh, mm -hmm. you know, let's call it between the sort of 2,000 and 8,000 pounds or uh, 3,000 and $10,000 sector, were A, um, using many of the manufacturers that we were being introduced to in China, that kind of interesting. Secondly, that they were um, all often using exactly the same componentry. Yeah. This, bear in mind, was before, um, before ETA, stop the resale of um, of the movements into Far East Asia. Right. So you're able to buy Swiss-made movements directly and ship them to to Asia. No, nobody was even really aware of the the urgency of tightening up the ship because there was no there was no uh, risk of leak. Uh, and and in fact, legend would have it. You can confirm or deny this. Uh, the story, as I understand it, is that Christopher Ward is the very first ever online-only watch company. Um, yes, I think we. I think that's true. Um, certainly, when we launched um, in June of two thousand and five, that was the case. Um, and so, the, you know, the redefining. I mean, the redefining of the business model. I mean, the internet already existed. All we did was apply it to watches. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> and accessing the um, accessing um, manufacture and a, a manufacturing base we had assumed would be difficult. It turned out not to be very difficult. Um, and you know, we set off. Um, we made some you know some terrible mistakes. I mean, you've no idea how little we knew about watch manufacture. I mean, we <laughs> I employed. Um, <laughs> The first designs of our, the very first, and these are these are these weren't the actual finished designs, but the the, uh, the design company who had um, been involved with our branding at ELC 
a really uh, a really great uh, team of people who had never been involved in designing anything other than toys and clothes and stores and stuff. I said, look, guys, we, we want a fresh look. You know, we want, we want to approach this market in a new way. You know, we're internet only. We're the first out there to do it. You know, we've got to bring some real freshness to the ideas of what watch design looks like. And they, they went, well, yeah, fantastic. You know, let's get on with it. So we every said, right. Designers, you, every designer's dream. Every uh, designer's yeah. dream. So they, create, they created some outstanding designs, I have to say. And I've got them in a file somewhere. One day, one day I'll put them in Loop magazine. And we'll all have a good look. Everybody can have a good laugh <laughs> at my experiment. Um, but but what, what we and they hadn't quite figured is that really movement will dictate what the dial can do and look like uh, sure. <laughs> so, so they're crea- they're creating the most incredibly complex dials on a watch face that that, that they assumed we would be able to sort out and so did i and we were <laughs> and and some of the very first conversations we were having with our manufacturers were very interesting as they i think they thought we literally i think they might have thought we were slightly mad yeah. um, and then <laughs> and, and and, and, and then my first idea, um, and I remember sitting, because we first started off, you know, doing everything. It was um, Swiss movement rather than Swiss made. It was 08, 07, 08, we moved to Switzerland. But um, in the very, one of the very first meetings we had with, uh, with this watch brand, watch company, watch manufacturer, assembler in, uh, in, in China, and I'm at, I'm famous for being at a flip chart. I, I'm, I'm, I like a flip chart. Yeah? So the idea was, and, and by, by the way, I'd, uh, a few years earlier, and you might remember this, you might be too young, I don't know, but I, I had queued up for my, my iPod you know, in, uh, when it was released in Hong Kong for three hours to get my iPod. I still think that was one of the greatest inventions known to man the iPod. Quite literally revolutionary, yeah. I, I would oh, say. It, just, it changed my life. It changed, I just thought it was just the most incredible thing. It also occupied zillions of hours of loading all my CDs into it for many, many, many months. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. All that's of right. which was then supplanted by streaming. You know? um, hey, technology. Um, but we, but but I, Apple had been um, had been one of the first to. I was buying uh, Apple. I that's the second iPod I bought. I bought directly online, and it was shipped ex China. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's that's the kind of just in time supply chain that I've been used to, and that's what we discussed with our friends in China about. Look, what we want is we've got an internet. This internet, this thing called the internet, we're going to be selling our watches off it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, an order will come in. We will transfer that order down the line to you. You will then assemble that watch within the day. And before the end of the day, you will ship it directly to our consumer, wherever that consumer is in the world. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Silence. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I, I don't know what sort of weed they thought I'd been smoking, but uh, they 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 want they definitely wanted some. They thought we were absolutely stark raving bonkers and or British, which sometimes the two co- the two the two things coincide. Don't yeah, they? maybe not. Maybe not inaccurate. Neither in, in either instance. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. But 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 the fact is, I still think that's a. I mean, they just kind of after a few flip charts of me trying to explain how you get just in time if toyota can do it 
uh, with motor cars. Surely you guys can do it for a little thing called a bot. Mm. Actually, actually, it, will, it is an idea whose time will come. And I hope that we might be the first to do it. It's also a really interesting insight into the, I believe, and it was only later that I kind of worked this through, really. A really in interesting insight into the nature of the watch industry and yeah. the conservative uh, approach and the, 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 the resistance to change mm -hmm. that that industry has really exercised for so many decades. Yeah? Right. And is only now slowly, slowly beginning to evolve from. Um, and so, you know, there, were no, there was no way any of this was going to happen. Um, but then they were also sure that we would be going bust within months because no one would buy a single watch. And we had our biggest difficulty was convincing them to give us shipping terms, you know, um, um, because uh, they didn't think we would sell any. Um, but, but there you go. Hey. So you do you do eventually convince them that this is a workable business model. And, and, yeah, yeah. and in 2005, you, Christopher Ward, releases its first watch. Uh, you, you know, that's a that's a moment in time that I think a lot of people w would like to have experienced. And, and lucky for us, we've got a guy who did experience that, uh, you, you know, as they say, the rest is history. But talk us through that moment, you know, or maybe that series <coughs> of moments where this thing goes from uh, the idea of a bonkers uh, couple of Englishmen to uh, an actual going concern where, hey, this might work. Um, it was all our brilliance that really... Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if only. Um, um, I mean, to be honest, things were pretty slow to start with. Um, <laughs> and we began to think that people, they may have been right, um, that you couldn't sell watches off the internet. And then towards that very first Christmas, um, suddenly seeing orders from no idea at all as to why. And it was only post-Christmas we discovered that what had happened is we'd taken an, um, a single-page ad out in a, a British newspaper called The Independent, um, um, and um, a guy called Dave Malone lived in Tasmania. Somehow got to see this copy of the <laughs> uh, to see this copy of the Independent and our one-page ad, which was of our C C5 Mulvern automatic watch, which had an S2824 um, as its uh, as its um, power source, and. Um, at a price that um, we knew was very competitive, but he 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 turned out to be a major member of um, Timezone.com, which back in two thousand five, you know, I mean, before social media just completely sort of um, ramped up, Timezone.com was the number one place in the world for watch nerds to go and discuss watches. Yeah, and Dave was a major player in that. He was a very, uh, very well-informed, uh, well-regarded poster. Um, and um, he bought, he saw this ad, thought that we must be clearly illegitimate, that we were lying because there was no way we could produce what effectively was the same sort of uh, spec as, let's say, an IWC Portofino at the time. Right. Yeah? Mm -hmm. um, that was selling at a less than a tenth of the cost of a Portofino. And... Um, 
So he bought one with the intention, understandably, um, to expose us as the fraudsters that we clearly were, uh, to our eternal good fortune and to his, more importantly, to his credit when he got the watch and because he knew watches and he took the back off and he realised it was a genuine Swiss-made Etta, as you can tell, uh, there are certain markings which... Mm-hmm. You allow you to know the stuff if you know and if you certainly know and certainly at that time the sort of super uh super clone industry hadn't really developed no not not to not 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 to anywhere like it became as you say and so dave malone wrote this huge post on time zone saying in his view he uncovered the best value mechanical watch the world had ever known we had no idea. I didn't even know. We didn't even know time zone existed. I mean, that's how naive we were. <laughs> and of course, because Dave was a well-regarded guy, a few other people started to go, well, if Dave thinks it's the best, I'm going to have one of them. So people started all over the world buying Mulvan automatics. Um, and apparently, and we only found this out later, apparently this fledgling tiny little watch brand with you know idiots like me in charge of it who knew nothing really about the watch industry um, back in 2005 uh, was being talked about on the world's largest watch forum more than Rolex was in the run-up to Christmas 2005 I mean it's just bizarre Um, and so the order started to tick up and then there's a guy who, um, the, the, the guy who owned Time Zone, and guy, it turned out to be a chap called Michael Sandler. And Michael and we became good, good chums later on. But at this point, he thought we were paying people to write. And of course, what then, as other people bought, bought our watches and discussed, they were posting fantastic things about the thing Mushroom. Mm-hmm. And um, Michael, Michael, again, reasonably it seems to be because he'd never heard of us uh assume we were paying these people it's called shilling yeah yeah in, uh, in uh, the internet world it's a poker term isn't it and to shill is to have somebody in the in the in the poker game who's um who's 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 frauding you essentially uh, i mean we didn't even know time zone existed and it wasn't until um a chap called hans van hoogstraten um a dutch a dutch chap <laughs> you'll, you'll be you'll be uh, quick to discern um uh contacted us he michael had michael had thrown him off time zone along with a whole host of other people because they kept posting these positive things about this bloody brand called christopher ward who was obviously paying people out out off off do not darken our the time time zone doorstep again so one of them hans was so frustrated and so infuriated by this in, in fairness to him, he rang us up and said, look, guys, I, I've, I've, I've just been thrown off time zone for saying nice things about you and your watch. Um, and we went, what? Who? Time zone? Who? What? And that's where we started piece, piecing it together. And Hans said, uh, the reason I'm ringing is, um, would you mind if I set up a forum about Christopher Ward? Um, because there are a lot of disaffected um, time zoners who think what you're doing is really interesting, and we'd like to set up a forum to discuss it. Well, what? Uh, are you sure? I said, you know, well, yes. I mean, we said, and we said, well, look, you know, the only the only way we'll do this is if it's truly independent. Um, you know, you must run it. 
we will not influence at all. Um, but by all means, anyway, I mean, you know, not thinking would last more than a week and a, or you know, two weeks at most. It's still going. Um, it has thousands and thousands of members. It has been, and not, <laughs> they're, they're, they're also, um, because we, we now, about 10 years later, Hans, understandably again, had quite enough of running this forum yeah. and financing it himself. So, and he, he wanted to go on and do other stuff. And so he said, look, would you like to buy it off us? And we said, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll fund it, um, but we don't want any editorial involvement. And have you got a team that you can? So a guy called Kit McEwen, who um, had been a follower of ours for many years and a big poster on the, um, on the forum, took over the moderating of the forum and it's gone from strength to strength ever since. Um, and so, as I say, luck plays a, um, a huge part in, in anybody's success, if they're honest. And we had our more than our fair share of luck with, with that episode, I think. Oh, and it's, it's such a cool story of a, a watch brand entirely on the internet, entirely spread by the internet. I mean, it's, this is the first watch story like that and and that led a lot of momentum to a lot more releases like really fast i'm talk on talk, yeah. talk to us about the about the the new iterations of watches the new families that you were bringing to the front and all of this momentum that you're generating with that right you because, mean you mean in the present day you mean yeah well, well yeah you know yeah. <clears throat> looking at uh this last 18 months or so it, it's been an extremely interesting you know, in terms of products and manufacturing, uh, a, a lot of companies have sort of receded into themselves. And I, I think certainly in watches, we've seen shipping delays, China uh, essentially stopping. Um, mm -hmm. But but you guys in the last 18 months, even less than that, uh, have been banging them out. You, you know, we've got April 2020, C60 Sapphire. We've got August 2020, the wonderful C65 super compressor, which I've spotted on your wrist. Mm -hmm. We've got October, the, the C65 chronograph, which I think is an extremely uh, under, maybe not underrated, but but under-discussed release. And, and then obviously... Now, Couldn't agree more. <laughs> now we've got we've got these wonderful Sealanders, one of which we've got in front of us uh, that, that Andrew purchased because he just was enamored. So yeah. talk to us about... How how that how that decision was made? I assume some of that decision was made before we knew, but you guys have continued to crank them out. Yeah, um, I suppose the the genesis of these releases, um, in some ways, was a good five years earlier, mm -hmm. um, six years earlier, um, when um, we appointed um, a very important person into our business, um, a young designer called Adrian Bookman, um, Swiss designer. He, um, he decided he wanted to, um, to leave Switzerland because his, um, his, his, his new wife, um, her family lived in, um, lived in the UK. And he, um, he wrote to me saying, uh, he, he liked the look, he liked the cut of our jib. Um, <laughs> and this is a guy who'd been working on, you know, lots of, very famous brands um, um, because I don't think everybody quite necessarily understands that many of the big brands that, um, that we all know and love, um, they often 
um, employ external designers. Mm-hmm. And often those external designers are only employed to do aspects of a watch. Uh, whilst another, so one designer might be uh, uh, asked to produce the crown. Uh, another will be asked to produce the the the, the facets of the dial, etc. It's quite 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 um, quite interesting the way it, it kind of works. But um, we'd always uh, had um, design in house. Uh, because we, we we felt that that was intrinsic to what we were about as a brand. Mm-hmm. When Adrian became available, um, we snaffled him up and set about rethinking how we could create really distinctive Christopher Ward designs that would stand the test of time um, that whilst even if they were reflecting trends within the industry, because it's almost impossible not to uh, not to reflect some of the important trends in the industry, particularly if you're wanting to be commercially successful. Right. You know? I mean, where 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 would the watch industry be without Rolex? Let's be honest. You know, uh, <laughs> and, I mean, you know, let, let, they were so many won't admit it. It's like uh, it frustrates the hell out of me. And what we're not talking about here is is slavish copying, but we are talking about sensitive, empathetic translation. And within when we when we took on Adrian, we had one of the and I I think he is one of the the best and brightest stars of uh, watch design in 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 the industry. We had the opportunity to reimagine our entire collection and. In watches, that takes time. Yeah. And I remember saying to a journalist about um, three and a half years ago, um, look, you know, judge, judge, judges, please, in another three to four years, because that's how long it's going to be before we get the sort of collection together that I think um, can really separate us from, from others and really do credit to the work and the the efforts that so many people in our business put in and we that combined with fashion background that says we like newness um, and we like pace which is not necessarily typical in the watch industry has led to what seems like a flurry of releases but many of these have their their, their genesis as uh, their genesis as i say Quite a quite a while ago. Well, I don't think we can do all these all these. You know, we listed all four four releases. Uh, I don't think we can do them all justice. But but I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about some of them because I think some of these releases are pretty stinking special. Um, you, you know, starting for me with the C sixty five super compressor, I was <laughs> it it really occurred to me that y- you guys have have really dedicated yourself to doing something special here and, and and actually let me back up because not to be effusive uh although you're here so i'll, I'll blow some smoke in any event um, <laughs> but you, you know looking back a few years you know when you when christopher ward introduces the light light catcher case right. and uh w- we actually have all sorts of nicknames on this show for that uh but I, but i won't bore you with that uh you, you know, it it instantly occurred to me, like in terms of design 
and in terms of your desire to to really carve out a space for Christopher Ward in this watch world that that's more like something like a Rolex or more like even even Seiko, uh, where when I think of when I think of an IWC watch, I don't necessarily think of design. I think of quality quality watches, but I'm not thinking about design. I think you guys have have sort of focused in on on a on an actual design space in the industry. Uh, and, and then, you know, last year you introduced this super compressor, which is obviously an older design, you know, classic retro inspired looks, but you're doing something else here. And, and I think you're doing something a little risky uh, w- with that watch. Uh, m- maybe not even a little risky, maybe a lot risky. So uh, talk us through, talk us through that, that watch, because it's so incredible. Um anachronistic probably purposefully so but really incredible um well thank thank you and um the guys will um will really appreciate genuinely really appreciate your analysis because um they do work um very hard to create something uh, of real value that is different and so when people like you who are familiar with watches, um, you, you live and breathe watches. When you see something that you believe is recognizably different, genuinely it has a major impact because that's that's what we try to do. Um, as far as the super compressor is, is concerned, it, it, it's part of the same story, but it's different in the sense that uh, the same because um, if you're restless as an individual, and I'm guessing you guys probably are as well, <laughs> then um, you know, you, you're always you're always looking to, to to push yourself, to push boundaries, to do something different, to take risks. You know, life without risk is a pretty dull life in many ways. Uh, and as long as you can succeed more than you fail in life, generally, as long as you make more good decisions than poor decisions, generally you're probably going to be okay. It's like go- the game of golf, of, no, right. right? As long as you have more pars yeah. than pars and birdies than you have bogeys, you're going to be okay. But, you know, you can, and, and if it's match play, you can still have a stinker. You can still take 13 <laughs> on a hole and still win. Yeah. 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 Um, and in a way, in a way, that's, um, that's kind of the, one of the philosophies that we try to bring to watch design within, within the business. Um, so, it was actually inspired by a customer um, who wrote, sent me an email. Uh, he bought it. He was, he had, I think he owned about half a dozen Chris Ford watches and he was, you know, eulogizing about the watch, which was lovely. But he then threw in um, a little aside, which sort of captured our attention, which was, um, you know, wouldn't it be great if somebody could literally um, bring back to the market a true super compressor now 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 Uh, talk to us about that because you're saying a thing and we know that's this to be the case but i'm not sure everybody (sighs) understands that principle that concept that everybody knows what a super compressor case is everybody knows epsa story maybe not everybody but many many people do this is different this is a true super compressor and, and that's an important distinction it is i mean um like many things um you know, a number of people have um, coerced the name super compressor. I mean, you can you can search and you can find many watches, current watches from some 
50 big brands who describe their watches as super compressors. For some people, it even means it's got two crowns. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, um, you know, but but actually, um, that that's nothing to do with a super compressor. The super compressor was was originally um, developed by a, a Swiss brand back in the fifties, fifty four, um, and um, if we take ourselves back into those early days of subaqua um, diving, um, actually, you know. A watch was before computers. Um, you know, a watch was really important, but but because the tolerances of watches were um, were, were pretty poor in those days. Um, therefore, you know, the the as as you dived, the watches would often um, go kaput. They would either implode or they'd stop working. Water ingress was a major problem. Gaskets were of a poor quality, um, so. The people who created the super compressor um, decided that for a true professional diver, they needed to come up with a solution which which mitigated that problem. And the solution that was available at the time wasn't available. They created it um, that could cope with um, the the poor tolerances of watch case manufacture, particularly at the time, and the poor quality of gaskets was to create the super compressor, which is essentially a spring that lives inside the case back and it, it works in the way the opposite way to that which many people think so what it does the spring activates as as the case as the diver dives the case the pressure pushes the case in yeah but then the spring the really clever bit the spring then pushes back against that yeah. descending case and compresses it against the gasket creating a much more watertight seal Instead of, instead of brute force, mm -hmm. they're they're using yeah. the lever action. It's similar yeah. similar to what Vostok was doing at the same time. Uh, 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 absolutely. I mean, and and very sort of um, you know very counterintuitive. Really smart engineering. The guy who came up with it really smart <clears throat> and complex to do. I mean, and they they then were selling these um, these uh, designs into. You know, 50, 100 brands. I mean, they're uh, the only thing that they distinct. They had their own watches, but the the thing that distinguished them more than anything else was they they used to put a small um, diving helmet um, onto yeah. the back of the the case back, and that was the thing that distinguished them from all of the others. Uh, but it became common practice. Seventy four, it ended, um, and since seventy four, nobody because. Tolerance has improved. Nobody needs a super compressor to mm -hmm. dive with now. M machining tolerances are right. so much better that we just don't need that. Exactly. And therefore, we decided to bring it back to life and to be true to that brilliant invention. And so while you're doing this, you're, you're, you're hearkening back to OG technology development. You're also dropping really new stuff and I, I we we really want to touch on the on the c63 line what's the thinking on a new family with three siblings <laughs> yeah it's a nice way of putting it actually um um again um when we analyzed the the collection um a while back um we thought we identified a gap um one of the things we were working on at that time um, was an integrated um, 
watch design. I mean, and we will come back to integrated um, uh, at some point in the in the in the future. Um, but we couldn't quite get something that we all were really happy with that really did something new in that uh, in that space. But we knew that bracelets were because I think of the integrated um, design, and of course because of you know Explorer, Explorer Two, etc. The bracelets were um, were really um, really on trend, but we hadn't got this sort of sports adventure watch, this sort of go anywhere, do everything sort of watch, which um, uh, we felt was a gap in the collection. Yeah. How how could we then fill that gap? Uh, the truth is, we didn't think there is one watch that could go anywhere, do everything uh, necessarily. Um, and I still don't think that's necessary. It's a good, it's a good marketing ploy, isn't it? But right. is, it, is, it, is, it, is it, is it, is it, is it really, really, really true? I don't think so. We'd be out of business, by the way, if everybody only has one watch. So, right. Uh, but the, the, but the principle, but the principle of it is, is a collection that covers all of those bases, and each of those watches has something different, unique, that does represent that sort of sense of. I can wear this watch in almost any situation, right. albeit it has different relevancies uh, depending on the situation you find yourself in. So at the top end, you've got the Elite, which has a retractable crown, is titanium, um, is, is a sports watch par excellence in my view. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and anybody who's a cyclist, uh, and I am, uh, will, will, will really understand how wonderful a watch this is for cyclists stops that dreadful Im imprint at the back of your hand right. when you're cycling. Um, and a chronometer grade. Right. And, and, yeah. I, think and, it's a, and it, uh, I mean, let's just pile it all Titanium. in there. You know? <laughs> I mean, this is really, this is really uh, maybe more so than any other watch in your catalog. This is a truly premium uh, piece of equipment, right? Um, I, I would, I would concur with that. I mean, I think there, um, I think there are other watches that, um, and um, people sometimes uh, forget, but our JJ calibers, our, our Caliber SH21 watches. Right. I mean, take a look, for instance, at our um, at our um, Moonglow watch and the JJ1 cal <coughs> sorry, the JJ4 caliber that is inside that. That alone is a huge, huge, huge step that a brand our size shouldn't be taking. You know. Um, to create one one of if not the only perpetual moon phase that's ever been constructed mm -hmm. is 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 you know is is not a small thing it's accurate to 128 years give or take you know <laughs> uh, provided it's kept wound yeah. and if it's not and, and if and if after 125 years you find it to be inaccurate i'll honestly give you your money <laughs> um so so no so, no inflation um, on that right I no, no, no 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 sans inflation thank you um it'll be in the small print somewhere I, i'm, I'm sure. an attorney so i just want to i'm keeping you honest here <laughs> absolutely so um you know so so i i i i don't necessarily agree it's the uh, the most advanced uh, technological thing we've ever done having said that the um working through particularly the um the construction of the uh, retractable crown had its own special challenges. And, you know, um, we've only found, I think, a couple of other brands that have ever done it. Um, the most famous is possibly Omega, 
with their uh, ultralight um, um, version. Um, but that retails at um, you know forty thousand dollars plus. That's right. Um, yeah, this is these are and so, these so, are watches that from a Swiss uh, from a Swiss sort of uh, grandpa brand, as it were, are going to cost you you know a, a Porsche prices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and, and and we're currently working on our, our second watch with a, uh, which is you know still going to be similar to the um, the Sealander Elite, but um, a different a different interpretation, which will be uh, coming out in the sort of end of October, early November. Um, and uh, honestly, I see legs in this idea, a tractable crown. How far it goes. Um, not sure yet, but it's it's something I think uh, is really interesting. Um, it gives a completely different sense when wearing a watch with a retractable crown. Um, that symmetry, that perfect roundness, um, gives a different sort of pleasure and mm-hmm. aesthetic, uh, as well as being incredibly comfortable. So uh, I think it's something that I think um, has legs um, beyond one or two watches, but we'll see. We'll see. So, so in addition to obviously the the top grade, um, the elite the elite range, right? You've also got a GMT, yeah. which is which is lovely and gorgeous, and and then I think you've got sort of an everyman watch in the automatic. Uh, yeah, are, are you purposefully giving? you know, creating an option for, you know, different price points, or is that just a byproduct of the watches that you wanted to be able to release in this family? Uh, no, uh, um, you're right. First time we're looking, we think it's really important that um, we remain in touch and give people who are entering the world of watches, uh, particularly um, the possibility of acquiring an entry point into fine watches and, uh, you know, I think a thousand pounds, a lot of money for a watch. It, it is uh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, I think 500 pounds, a lot of money for a watch. We, we never take this for granted. The fact that our pricing has evolved, um, is, is largely down to demand people, people want us to continue to give more and more. Nothing's changed in terms of our, um, of our, uh, pricing model. You know, we, we still very simply multiply the cost price to us by three. Uh, and in some cases, believe it or not, our, our more expensive watches, we possibly bring those down below three. And so arguably our, the best value watches we have are some of the more expensive. But there was always a danger that as we move away from, um, you know, and, and towards more complex watches, that we forget about um, you know, people coming into watches and fine watches, mechanical watches. So it was absolutely a criteria for the Sealander, that we had an entry level that still had no compromises in terms of its quality, um, but was able to retail at a price that uh, not everybody, because again, I don't think it's a cheap watch. Nothing we do is cheap, um, but it is accessible for a large majority of people. And it gets them into you know, the sort of watchmaking that we all love. Uh, and and honestly, and this is this is this is where I would, um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll fly the flag for us. You know, I don't think anybody. There are plenty of watches around that price, but if somebody, and I've said this several times, if somebody can bring to our attention and my attention 
a watch that has an, that is of equivalent quality at that price with the same sort of attention to detail that we pour into our watches, I will give them a free watch. I've made that point several times now. Nobody has taken me up on it. I believe pound for pound, our watches give you more because of the attention and the quality and the manufacturing expertise that we bring to bear on our watches. We could go and take our watches to what I call jungle factories. Many brands, many cheap brands use jungle factories. Yeah, By that, I mean cheap factories yeah. where the highest standards of equipment are not used, the highest standards of, uh, of, of employment are not necessarily used. You and I both know you can find cheaper factories in any sector of any industry anywhere in the world. Yeah. We don't do that. We go to the best available. And so you, you're, you're building in uncompromising quality into our watches. That is not true. And it's not true of many micro brands, I have to say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, well, we talked a little bit about the democratization of, of watches. And, and you talked about how when you guys started, the margins were really out of control in, in general watchmaking. I think in, in the microbrand world, at least, we've almost seen a reversal of that fortune where we've now got maybe the opposite problem where the expectation of the enthusiast is that, you, you know, we know, we know that many of these manufacturers are making very small margins, sometimes almost non-existent margins, which, mm -hmm. which is not good for business, uh, ultimately. No. Uh, but there's an expectation, a consumer expectation that comes with that. And and I think that your point is a good one, right? Not all watches are created with the same level of sustainability or, or you, you or know, just you, responsible business practices, responsible business yeah. practices. But that extends beyond the profits of the manufacturer, right? That, that uh, uh, quality of life of, of the people doing the labor, um, the, the full meal deal. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and whilst I'm, a, you know, I'm always obviously going to be uh, somebody who wants to fan the flames of uh, of micro brands, but they have to be micro brands that are doing it in the right way for the right reasons. And I fear too many at the moment aren't. And the, the barriers to entry into watches is, are so low in some cases that they outsource mm -hmm. everything. Um, it's everything. a turnkey operation, yeah. ev like everything. Yeah. Um, and... I'm not entirely comfortable with that direction that the, the industry is going in, frankly. And yeah, and there, there's a risk there because what it does is it creates, because there, there's there's very good quality watches available on the market right. for next to nothing. There is a saturation at the four to $600 price point where some are great, some are okay, and many are bad. And it, it brings a little bit of devaluation to a watch like yours. And, and so I have the C63 automatic. And when I saw the first pictures of it, I was like, Woof, I'm buying that watch. And I think the day it dropped, I, I submitted my order. <clears throat> there is such <laughs> a noticeable difference mm -hmm. between this watch and a $500 watch. In, in many instances, right? Not in every instance. And even at similar price point watches that I've, that I've handled, that I've been around, this stands out um, in, in a way that comes from superior manufacturing processes. And it's, uh, it's so noticeable. I mean, there are good watches uh, at the lower price points. But if I say, if I say to you that... Um, 
you know, there are there just aren't any. There there are there are very few really high quality case manufacturers in the world mm-hmm. these days. Certainly, very few outside of Switzerland. Yeah, most of the most of the cases that are produced for most of those brands that are in that sort of uh, uh, mid luxury segment that I talked about, most of them are produced in China. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Tudor. China, yeah, right. I've never heard them. I've never heard it expressed, but it's true. We, yeah? we know it to be true. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but they themselves go to the very, very, very best manufacturers. Yeah, yeah. Um, and guess what? You know, that's where one of the one of the big advantages we've got is our operation in Switzerland, and my partner in crime, who's been in this industry for nigh on 40 years, um, who has established relationships with the major manufacturers uh, and was able to, and through his relationships, if you like, we were able over time to graduate into class one factories. Mm-hmm. Uh, if That wouldn't have been the case back in 2004. So I'd like to talk about one one more thing here before before we sort of start wrapping it up. But I, I know that Christopher Ward was a huge part of uh, introducing this uh, alliance of British watch and clockmakers. You, you know, we think about watch industries, global watch industries, or, or maybe national watch industries. Obviously, the Swiss watchmaking industry is is very, very famous. We've got Japanese watchmaking industry, which is, you know, maybe one or two German, the, the US, which died and then maybe looks like it's starting to come back. Uh, certainly Chinese watchmaking industry, um, which maybe struggles to have an identity in and of itself. Um, I think that what we're seeing right now, it, it, not necessarily that it ever went away, uh, but a resurgence. I know you guys just signed your 60th maker, which is a, just a tremendous deal. What is it about? What What is the features of the British watch uh, industry? What, what makes a watchmaker British? Beyond being based in, <laughs> yeah. in Great Britain. That, that's an important criteria. It has to be said that the, um, they need to be, um, they, need, they don't need to manufacture necessarily in Great Britain. Indeed, very, very few watches are manufactured in Great Britain. We hope that will change, um, but that's going to be a generation, two generations. Nobody's, sure. nobody's, naive, nobody's naive enough to think that's going to happen quickly. But why wouldn't we want, to, why wouldn't I want a first class case at the end of, uh, the road that our boss is in Maidenhead, if I could find it, and it, they could produce me top quality cases at the price that I wanted to buy. I mean, that's just obvious. Uh, but that's going to take a lot of work. I think one of the th- distinguishing things, and this is not just about British watchmaking, but it incorporates British watchmaking. And, and Roger Smith and I have discovered this during the journey that we've been on um, founding the Alliance of British Watching Clockmakers, um, is a bit like Formula One. Um, there's some. I mean, <laughs> the the Brits have always been good at great engineers, and they've always been innovative. They've always been innovators. Um, sometimes we're not the best at turning those innovations into industrialized success. Right. <laughs> um, you guys are a bit better than we are at that. Um, and certainly in 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 watchmaking, the Swiss turned out to be even better than you guys. Um, Certainly. But mm-hmm. 
But what I do think that um, that uh, the Brits do have is a kind of a uh, a psyche that says they will take some risks. They are entrepreneurial. Um, they are innovative. And I think we can bring the industry in this country, if it takes on board some of the things that the Formula One industry has, has developed in this country, can be a leader again of innovation in watchmaking. And we shouldn't forget that the biggest innovation in my humble view uh, over the last 200 years in watchmaking was, 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 was created by a Brit, George Daniels. He's the greatest, he's the greatest um, Brit of the last 100 years that nobody's ever heard of. Um, you know, and he, he, his, his, his invention of the coaxial escapement is, is absolutely astonishing. Um, uh, and Roger, Roger Smith has now taken that onto a, an even greater level of uh, sophistication. And Roger himself, um, and, uh, you know, um, produces what 13 or so watches a year, all of, um, all of a, a, an unbelievable quality, but also of high innovation, even though they are classical in design. Roger himself is working with the Manchester Institute of Technology at the moment on a nanotechnology that has the capacity to completely and utterly transform our industry. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's the enemy nanotechnology will get rid of lubrication potentially in watches. And he's working on that as we sit and talk here. And it's got real possibilities. And that's not come from Switzerland. That's not come from anywhere else. That's come from the UK. And that's the sort of thing I think the UK can bring to the party. It doesn't matter to me that it becomes the biggest. I just think we need to be really the smartest. That That's, that's wonderful. And, and, and I think that Christopher Ward is really, uh, a huge part, you know, not, not just administratively, right. But I think just in terms of the spirit of British watchmaking, a huge part of that. So, that's wonderful. Uh, well, it's very kind of you. It's a very kind of you. We're a small part. I mean, you know, there's many other people who are who are really pushing just as hard. So you know, our, our uh, listeners. It's very kind. But our, our listeners will be quick to point out that bullshit. You and and uh, and, and I. I <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Well, Mike, this this is the time of the show. We, we, we've gone probably just a touch longer than we intended to, and that's okay. This is the the time of the show where we're going to transition to other things. Uh, and, and and as we're wont to do by tradition, I'm going to start with my good friend Andrew here. Andrew, other things. What do you got? It is another thing, and I'm I'm going to talk about a tool that I've had for a while and have been able to use quite a bit and this a tool. is yeah and this is like i don't know a, a 30 you're not talking about me yeah no i'm talking about Everett. this is my <laughs> good friend ever um no i'm gonna do about a 90 day lot of use just come back to a porter cable benchtop jointer oh oh it's, yeah it's we, we've PC heard about this before. 160 jt and a lot of the reviews say, oh, you know, I ran a couple pieces of lumber through it and it stopped working. Oh, the the bed got grooves in it and now it's not level. And for mine, and in, in fairness, this is a mass-produced thing, but what I can say is that it is still running strong, cutting straight, cutting smooth. I've run many, many pieces of lumber through it with absolutely no issues. It's still available on Amazon, ships right to your front door. And if you're looking for a benchtop jointer, I'm I'm pleased to report that this thing is still running strong, still doing what it needs to do, partner it well with a planer, but it's it's still 
still running along and kicking. Well, and you've built you've built n- 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 big pieces of furniture. Yeah, not a small amount point. of things. I've done a I, I did a full butcher block, a seven foot long, four ish, just shy of four foot wide butcher block table. So it's it's had a lot of lumber put through it. Yeah, you you've put it through its paces. I have, and, and then and then plenty of small things. I mean, you know, in the way of frames and other you know, smaller furniture, but... And Porter Cable is one of these companies that's known for affordable, but yes. certainly, you know, lower-end quality oh. quality control standards. Uh, in, in your estimation... For a benchtop, I think this is probably the best option in in the way of, of benchtop jointers. Because well, the right choice is obviously to get a full-size, you know, yeah. commercial quality. But if, if you, like us, have, you know, a corner of your garage that you're allowed to use for this practice... This bench top is great. It's not so great when you're working in eight foot sections. Um, just balancing, you really need a friend to help. But and what's the price on this? It is three. It's on the Amazon for three sixty nine. Okay, so so not cheap. This is not a cheap tool, but no. this oh three fifty nine. But it's not cheap, absolutely. But it is about on par with any other lower quality tool brand that you're gonna find. Now you've used you've used big joiners before mm-hmm. what are you looking at in terms of trade-offs for the price it's, it's a bench top i mean it, it's the smaller version of the tool that you need yeah which for people like us you need the small version i would love to have a cnc machine to do all my cutting for me <laughs> but, but i just don't i just don't have that capacity to do it and when you're looking to build out a small a shop where you can build and do anything out of your garage you need bench top tools yeah you know i have a bench top uh drill press in lieu of a stand-up and the limitation is that it's a bench top yeah in practice though it doesn't seem like that's been a huge limitation to nope. your being able to build giant ass tables you just have to find a way <laughs> table will find a way much like life all right good porter porter cable yeah bringing the heat yeah i've got another thing do it so i i think have talked about coffee on this show a number of times although we're, we're usually talking about beer or seltzer yeah. uh but in honor of our uh, in honor of our guest from England and our early morning recording time, I'm going to talk about some coffee uh, implements this this morning. So, as you know, uh, or or maybe know, I've got a very fantastic drip coffee maker, which is what I drink most of the time. I've got an espresso machine, a Breville uh, espresso machine, which I love. Uh, not a cheap purchase, but has been something we've used a lot. Buy nice, not twice. We have, my wife and I have recently, so entering into summer, uh, have been drinking cold brew, uh, cold brew a lot. And and cold brew is not a complicated thing to make. Uh, It's also not just cold coffee. It it is not. No, it it is not. It's coffee that's brewed typically at a concentrated level of extraction. Uh, Sort of like espresso would Mm -hmm. be, uh, you you know, these things are used in, you, you know, all sorts of Dutch Brothers or Starbucks drinks. They use a cold brew. It's a slow extraction, uh, so you get a little bit different flavors. You know, you don't get a real acidic mm-hmm. brew. Instead, what you get is this really rich, uh, comfortable, non-acidic, smooth. I'd say yep. uh, concentrate that you can drink in any number of ways. But the one I've been using is a toddy. This is an incredibly old design. Virtually unchanged, uh, and, and the name of that company is T-O-D-D-Y. I, I know a lot of people that do the same thing as a toddy, because essentially what it is, is you take this craft and you put a, it's got a hole in the bottom, you put a plug in the hole, um, 
drop a little cloth filter in, add 12 ounces of coffee and seven cups of water. Uh, and you just let it sit for 12 to 24 hours. Uh, I absolutely love this machine. It works. It's not a machine, right? It's just a, a plastic. It's like a, it's like a teapot that's set on top teapot. Takes about 12 hours, so you can do it, you know, as long as you do it early enough in the afternoon, five o'clock, six o'clock, you wake up in the morning, you pull the cap, and the, the reason I love this thing, it, so Kim uses this for what I would call cold brew drinks, right? She'll add some, some half and half or some whipping cream, uh, some sugar-free syrup, and it makes a really yummy, sweet summer drink. Mm-hmm. I found, I, I didn't have uh, a, enough time to make a full pot of coffee. This has been about a month ago. And, and so I thought, well, I've got this cold brew. And so I took, uh, I took you know, probably one to two parts, maybe one to three parts cold brew to water. Mm-hmm. And I just cut it and I zapped it in the microwave. Oh, yeah. For, I think, you know, 85, 90 seconds, something like that. Thinking, well, this will do the trick. I just need to get some, I just need to get some hot coffee in me. I zap it. It is one of the best cups of coffee I've ever had. You you think about you you know you don't get all the same sort of flavonoids and you know aromatics right. It, but in terms of drinkability, absolutely stunned. And some days I could make a pot of coffee and I don't because I really want that flavor. So I'm going to make a recommendation that you buy a toddy. They're like eighteen bucks. Go buy some some darker, medium dark roast espresso beans, and, and make a batch and try it out. If you if you are one of those people who wants a single serve of coffee occasionally, man, this stuff stores in the fridge for two weeks. Just Don't drink it. it like regular coffee, though. You will have a bad day. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a concentrate. So that's my other thing, Mister France. I know you've oh, got one because we've talked about this. I I, I feel completely inadequate. Sir against those two uh, amazing sort of, uh, suggestions. No, made. you know, uh, not at all. We, we, most weeks we do a Netflix show because yeah. we're lazy, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think the, uh, the thing that um, I've got is, um, is a book. Um, but it's, to me, it's a very special book. It's um, called Small is Beautiful by a German-British economist, philosopher, 1974. It was the book that was given to me by my economics master at my school, who suggested that I, um, I read this uh, to prepare for my Oxbridge examination. I failed to get into Oxford, so it didn't help there, but uh, <laughs> it's become, a, it's become a, a, one of the guiding principles um, uh, through my life. It's subtitled, A Study of Economics as if People Mattered. And Schumacher, Fritz, he was known as, was a really interesting chap um, who left Germany in the mid-30s. He was absolutely anti-Nazi, came over to the UK, um, ended up being, during the war, being put into a camp um, because anybody with a German accent was considered to be a spy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for for good reason. But despite that... Yeah, with, with but despite that, he developed a love for, for Britain. He was a great intellectual of his time. He went to he managed to get a um, become a Rhodes Scholar to uh, to Oxford University to study economics, and his life was uh, devoted 
uh, ultimately to trying to find an alternative route for society to live by. He was the very one of the very first people, and it's in this book, Small is Beautiful, who identified that fossil fuels, yeah, uh, if we continued to burn them at the rate we were burning them, this is going. This is well before it became such a political hot potato. Yeah. Uh, would would lead to all manner. It would lead to global warming, like we've never we would never know. Uh, and and in effect, in doing so, led to an uncivilized society. <coughs> and so he, he was one of the very first exponents proponents of sustainable energy. Um, the reason that I I, I I've I've read it and reread it several times since 1974, and I most recently reread it. Um, because we are working with the Blue Marine Foundation um, on uh, on um, on a number of issues, uh, it's only just beginning to become aware. I think that the the ocean, um, unless we start protecting it, is uh, no longer going to be the sort of carbon sink that it's been for yeah. all of the time thus far. Um, this guy Schumacher was way ahead of his time, and when I reread this book. Um, it seems as prescient and important today as it was to a very young, raw 18-year-old. It has still has the same sort of impact on me now. It's still available through Amazon. Um, it costs you less than $10. Honestly, everybody who was at the G7 over this last weekend in the UK and everybody who's going to attend COP26 in Glasgow in November could do a lot worse than reading this book. And one of the lines from it which I think is relevant to the world we live in and also watchmaking uh, is that wisdom, wisdom demands a new orientation of science and technology toward the organic, the gentle, the elegant and beautiful. And I can't think of a better way for us to live and work than that really. It's, it's totally lovely. That's lovely. So that's my recommendation. Well, well, this is uh, this is the time of the the show where we often times ask uh, our guests to sort of tell the people where they can be found. Uh, in in this instance, I'm just going to do the work for you because I think everybody at home uh, is keenly aware. ChristopherWard.com, obviously, uh, but do but do navigate yourself to the website because uh, a lot of new releases, a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, and, and, and to the extent that, that you want to track these guys on, on social media, you, you will have no trouble finding them there as well. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. This has really been an absolute wonderful opportunity for us. I'm so happy that you were able to come on. And thank you uh, for inviting me. I mean, what you guys do in helping all of us who are interested in watches continue that enthusiasm through the work that you do is really appreciated. So it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you. We loved it. Loved it. Andrew, what else do you got, man? I'm out of things. You're out of things? Well, out of things. Well, thank you guys for joining us for this episode of 40 and 20, the Watch Clicker podcast. Uh, thank you, Mr. France. Thank you, Andrew, for being here. It's my house. You look lovely as usual. Don't forget to tune back in next Thursday for another hour of watches, food, drinks, life, and other things we like. Bye-bye.